Hello, everyone. This is Ben Norton. And today we are going to talk about an issue that has been in the media for several years, Havana syndrome. You have probably heard of this strange, inexplicable illness where U.S. spies from the CIA and other intelligence agencies, U.S. diplomats uh, and officials in the Pentagon have reported that they have had headaches and uh, insomnia and uh, amnesia and have suffered from this psychological illness that couldn't be explained. There have been many media reports claiming that it could have been microwave weapons. The finger has been pointed at Russia, at China, at Cuba. It's called Havana syndrome because it was first noticed at the U.S. Embassy in Havana in Cuba. And the implication, I'll talk about the media reporting in a bit here, not just the implication, the the claim has been made for years now, since about 2017, that this is a concerted campaign waged by foreign adversaries against U.S. diplomats and intelligence officers. Well, we now have a confirmation directly from the CIA. This is a report that was just published at NBC News. The CIA says Havana syndrome is not the result of a sustained campaign by a hostile power. We're going to talk more about this report in a minute, but essentially the CIA did an internal assessment and found no evidence of attacks with microwave weapons or directed energy weapons. So this claim that we've heard for many years now has fallen apart. And to join us today to discuss this issue is a leading expert on mass hysteria and a leading expert specifically on this issue of Havana syndrome. We are speaking with Professor Robert E. Bartholomew. Professor Bartholomew is a medi medical sociologist, and he is a, an honorary senior lecturer at the Department of Psychological Medicine at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And Professor Bartholomew is the co-author of a book that was published two years ago now. He, he literally wrote the book, if you will, on Havana Syndrome. It is titled Havana Syndrome, Mass Psychogenic Illness, and the real story behind the embassy mystery and hysteria. He co-wrote this with the fellow medical expert, Robert Ballot. So Professor Bartholomew, let's just begin. Can you summarize your book, Havana Syndrome, and what is mass psychogenic illness, and how are you as a medical professional, how were you able to see very clearly what was going on when the CIA and the Pentagon and top U.S. government officials for years now have been claiming quite explicitly that this was a campaign of targeted attacks on U.S. diplomats using high-tech science fiction weapons like microwaves and directed energy? Well, I can summarize the book in uh, one sentence. When you hear the sound of hoofbeats in the night, first think horses, uh, not zebras. The <laughs> doctors at the American State Department went for the most exotic, far out, far-fetched explanations early on. They went on a search for unicorns when they should have stuck to mundane explanations. And you know, this really is a case of, and my first career was as a journalist in upstate New York. I worked for many radio stations. I was a news director at a couple of them. This is a case of bad journalism, bad government, and bad science. And keep people keep coming up to me and saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Concussion-like symptoms, white matter tract changes, brain damage, hearing loss, that's not mass hysteria. But none of that ever happened when you look closer at the studies. And part of the issue here, as being a journalist myself, is when something like this happens, you know, most people aren't experts on insects, politics of Cuba, microwave weapons, acoustical weapons, all these things that are in the mix. It's a very complex story. But when you break it down and you start analyzing the studies that were done, it's like, whoa, it's actually a really methodologically flawed study. 
and probably never should have been uh, published in the first place. And then you start, the more you look, um, the whole thing fell apart. I mean, it was, it was obvious to me. I would have bet my life, literally, that this was going to happen this way and the CIA would come up to their conclusions. Now, yes, it's preliminary. And now people are out there uh, and it's like, well, it's an interim conclusion, even though they said it was comprehensive. And uh, the more to follow, okay. But when you look at things like this, what's the um, interesting aspect of this? They said that out of a thousand cases, a couple of dozen were still unexplained. This reminds me of the recent government study on UFOs, where they said they looked at all these cases and they boiled it down to uh, less than 200 that were unexplained and they're still looking into those cases. Well, it's the same, you know, there's some unexplained Bigfoot cases out there and chupacabra cases as well. And what it comes down to is there's insufficient data for them to make uh, an adequate assessment of these um, small number of cases. I wouldn't get too excited or hopeful that they're going to find some energy weapon with these two dozen cases. It's simply a matter of um, having not enough information for them being able to make an adequate assessment at this time. But look, after five years, there are no intelligence intercepts about some secret weapon out there. After five years, there's no smoking gun. And the other aspect of this that's really interesting is the National Academy of Sciences report, which came out in December of uh, 2020, um, 2020. Um, so over a year ago, and they came out and it was really interesting. They said, well, we're really not sure, but if we had to make a guess, we'd say it's this fray effect, um, microwave, radiation. And it never could have been the fray effect. The National Academy of Science is loaded up on believers and nobody interviewed us. Nobody took the time to interview um, the main believers. Not one of them was interviewed on that panel. And to me, that was really telling. I think it's an example of politics was mi mixing in there with the science because it never could have been microwaves. Because if it had been microwaves, it would have shut down Wi-Fi systems, never reported. If it had been microwaves, it would have shut down computers. That wasn't reported either. Other people um, nearby would have been affected. And microwaves bombard your head and they produce a barely perceptible clicking sound, but it's not a sound at all. It's a perception of a sound because the microwaves stimulate a brain um, or ear nerve, which then gives you that perception of a sound. But those sound waves are not coming through the air. They're coming from the stimulation of nerves. And as a result, you can't record microwaves. And then out of the first 21 patients, you had eight of them reporting uh, that they re actually recorded the attack. In a 2018 classified study, the so-called Jason Report of elite scientists looked at this and they noted that, okay, you can't record microwaves. And by the way, of those eight recordings of so-called attacks of the first 21 victims, when they analyzed them, they turned out to be the mating call of the Indies short-tailed cricket, which by the way, is one of the loudest crickets in the world. And at first they were baffled by these sounds and they couldn't identify them. But then when they took into consideration the fact that there's reverberation in the room and you took that reverberation out, it aligned almost perfectly with the Indy short-tail cricket. Yeah, you're referring to a revelation that we actually learned a few years ago, back in, in 2018 and 2019. This is a report that was published back then in The Scientist. Recording of sonic attack in Cuba was crickets, according to scientific experts. But what's incredible to me, and what I want to talk about now, is how... We've known this for two years, but this story has continued 
I mean, it's grown more and more legs. And I want to actually point to a report that was just published in the Washington Post this past November. This is published November in the Washington Post. CIA director warns Russian spies of consequences if they are behind Havana syndrome incidents from November 24th of 2021. So we're not even just talking about a few journalists here or there. We're not even just talking about a few media outlets. We're talking about high level US government officials. And I'm wondering what this says about your thesis of mass hysteria. I think we've seen several episodes of this specifically in the US government, but also you have written a lot about cases of mass hysteria throughout history. I remember, for instance, in the 1980s, there and in uh, since then there have been these scares. For instance, warning of Satanism is supposedly taking over, uh, like like backward messages in music. If if little children listen to songs that have encoded backward satanic messages, or now there's something similar with QAnon. There's this idea that there's there's this crazy child ring trafficking conspiracy and there's this kind of hysteria around it so it seems to me that you can even apply that thesis to some u.s government officials themselves and that's what you've been arguing can you explain what mass hysteria is well first of all no one is immune to mass hysteria mass psychogenic illness because it's based on a belief and we all have beliefs and i keep hearing people saying oh the, the diplomats who were affected and the intelligence officers saying things like, we're not crazy. Um, I'm not suffering from a mental illness. These symptoms are real. Well, in mass psychogenic illness, the symptoms are real. So that was never an issue. Just because you're an intelligence officer or a diplomat doesn't render you immune from mass psychogenic illness. You're just like everybody else. It reminds me of Bigfoot sightings when people say, oh, it was a police officer. They're a trained observer. No one's a trained observer. Um, and all you have to do is ask all those people on death row, right, who were put there by somebody's eyewitness testimony when, in fact, DNA evidence exonerated them uh, years later. I think part of this can be put down to the fog of war, right? And now you've got the fog of just um, this whole episode and things get misty and it's hard to see. And you got to go back and you got to look at the facts and you got to go right back to the very beginning. And what happened at the very beginning? You got to go back to patient zero. And that was in late October, November of 2016. And you have these CIA officers in a posh area of Havana in their houses at night and they're walking around and they're hearing these odd sounds and they can't identify them, and they're talking about this. And then in late December, one of them had a headache and ear pain, went to the embassy clinic, and he said, you know, at night I've heard these strange sounds. It's almost like a beam of sound is being pointed at my home. They didn't think much of it. And then a couple other CIA officers said something similar, and this folk theory emerged that they were being targeted with a sonic weapon using sound waves and that then spread to the embassy personnel and you know there's reports out there that people didn't know about this the people at the uh, american embassy that we talked to who were there at the time said everybody knew it spread like wildfire and so you've got all these people being told now that first of all when you go to havana you're going to be surveilled 24 7. you know it, it, there's a historical um, background of that. And then on top of that, that you may be the victim, the target of this new sonic weapon. And don't stand near your windows at night. Um, when you're sleeping, don't sleep near a window. And so you've got this stress upon stress. Some of them had children there. And so you can see where it's this very stressful event and it's prolonged stress. And there's a specific type of mass psychogenic illness that is triggered by prolonged continuous stress. It's the same stress that happened in Salem in 1692. And you get neurological symptoms from this prolonged stress. And in the Journal of the American Medical Association study, 
the 2019 one, they found brain anomalies. And that got conflated with brain damage and reported around the world. But if you look closely at that study, first of all, it should never have been published because it was so, so seriously flawed. And there should be an investigation at the Journal of the American Medical Association how it was ever published. But it's not uncommon in small cohorts of patients when you look at scans to find minor anomalies. And that's exactly what they found, minor anomalies. If we looked at people's teeth and in a group of 25 or 30, you'd find minor anomalies. I mean, it's just the way uh, the world works. And the study itself said the anomalies weren't so significant that they couldn't rule out the possibility of individual variation. And those same anomalies are the exact same anomalies you'd expect to find in a group under prolonged long-term stress. So these brain anomalies never were. And then, you know, the media has a lot to answer for here because in the first, before the first JAMA study came out, in the media, they were leaking information from that research team. And they, one of the things they leaked was many of these patients had these mysterious white matter tract changes to their brains. And when you look closely at that claim, which was out there for about a year, that there were white matter tract changes, they couldn't explain them, blah, blah, blah. When the study came out in approximately February of 2018, that's not what they found. There were three white matter tract changes that were found in the small cohort of a couple of dozen patients. Two of them were minor, one was moderate. If you randomly pick 21 people off the streets today in New York or Los Angeles or Managua, you're going to find similar um, changes because white matter tract changes are common in everything from depression to dementia to normal aging. So it never was. Yeah, and, and on the subject of media reports fueling this, I mean, I, I think, for, first of all, we, have to, we do have to call it a conspiracy theory. It really is a conspiracy theory, and it shows how some conspiracy theories actually are promoted in the halls of power. I want to take a brief look at some of the media reports. We're not talking about just, you know, Fox News and One America News Network and, and Infowars and Alex Jones. We're talking about the most respected U.S. newspapers. Here is the newspaper record, the New York Times. Microwave weapons are prime suspect in ills of U.S. embassy workers, they reported. This is back in 2018. And there's so many of these reports, just, just to take a, a, small handful, a small handful of these. Here is Time Magazine in 2017. U.S. diplomats in Cuba were injured by a sonic weapon. What is that? And, and note how they, they state these as if they're facts. Uh, they said they were injured by a sonic weapon. Here is CNN in 2018. What we know about the possible sonic attacks in Cuba and now China. So here's another report in the New York Times. Again, the most respected newspaper in the United States. Report points to microwave attack as likely source of mystery illness that hit diplomats and spies. I mean, I, I could spend all day looking at these reports. But what I want to ask about actually is a rare exception. Uh, I, don't, I don't normally praise BuzzFeed, but BuzzFeed published a very good article last September, which actually led me to recommend your book to people and to investigate this issue further. And this article is titled, A Declassified State Department Report Says Microwaves Did Not Cause Havana Syndrome. And there's a particular line I want to quote here. Quoting, this is quoting a scientific review that was overseen by the U.S. State Department. And it concluded that it was, quote, highly unlikely that microwaves or ultrasound beams, now widely proposed by U.S. government officials to explain the injuries, were involved in the incidents. And although the report didn't def definitively conclude what caused the injuries themselves, it found that psychogenic mass psychology effects may have played a role. So I, I actually think we have seen a, a recent example of a similar mass psychogenic illness. And I say this as someone who is by no means a fan of Donald Trump. I mean, he was an awful president, a horrible person. 
but the idea that Trump was controlled by Putin, that that he it was a he was a Russian sleeper cell going back even to the end of the Soviet Union, that Russia had this compromise on him, and it turned out that this came from the Steele dossier, which actually the man behind the Steele dossier was a former British spy, and the main intelligence source for the Steele dossier was recently arrested because he completely made it up. So I think it's another example of one of these mass psychogenic illnesses. Can you talk about other examples we've seen perhaps in recent history of mass psychogenic illness like Havana syndrome? Yeah, uh, before I do, let me just uh, say, a lot of this comes down to the perception of mass psychogenic illness. Think of mass psychogenic illness as the placebo effect in reverse. We can make ourselves feel better through believing we can, because many, many um, illnesses and medical conditions are anxiety-based. It also works in reverse, and that's known as the nocebo effect. It's very well known in psychology. I mean, people living near wind farms um, where there's a lot of negative publicity report a lot of negative symptoms, and it's psychological. And there's a lot of the hum, you know, the mysterious sound heard around the world, people hearing these humming sounds and thinking it's causing health, health effects. Um, that's gone on for decades and decades. And there's been studies on that. Uh, and there's been no link whatsoever. And a lot of it's uh, more than likely tinnitus and just, just mundane sounds in the environment, right? Um, but what's fascinating here is, I think, the popular perception of what constitutes mass psychogenic illness. People don't really realize, and even journalists and a lot of medical professionals don't realize. I mean, some of these authors in the Journal of the American Medical Association were saying things like, oh, um, it couldn't be mass psychogenic illness because there was no obvious collusion among patients. I mean, they don't know what they're talking about when they're saying things like this, right? Or there was no evidence of feigning illness, faking the symptoms. Well, that's not mass psychogenic illness. Um, so it's this popular perception that's out there. That's a concern. And you're seeing that right now playing out on Twitter with people who were patients here who are outraged by the CIA study. And now they're filing um, whistleblower reports and things like this. I mean, really, if you go back to January of 2018, Marco Rubio had that Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing. I remember watching it live and he was calling, you know, it hypochondriacs and uh, we're not hypochondriacs, our diplomats and, you know, that this is all some kind of mass hysteria. I would love to testify before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee with Professor Balo because we would categorically go right down through and unmask what happened. And look, it's not even close. It's not like it's open to interpretation. These studies by the Journal of the American Medical Association seriously should be, there should be looked into and in how they ever got published in the first place. In 2018, that first study that was published, they contacted my colleague, Robert Ballow at UCLA, because he wrote the standard textbook in the field of the inner ear. Supposedly this was being affected. Um, so that's why they contacted him. And they said, look, you're the expert in the area. You've created several of the tests that they're actually using in this study. What do you think of the study? He flat out rejected the study and they published it anyway. And that's when we got together and published the book because I don't know how they published that study, but I do know one thing. Any neurologist or medical professional who looked at both of those studies if you are competent, you have to conclude that there was no way that both of those studies could have been published. I mean, in one of those studies, uh, they had 12 people who had concussions, a history of concussions, compared to zero in the control group, the healthy controls. I mean, that alone could explain the differences between the two groups. Um, it was just bad science. And that I think to a certain extent, journalists see that in the Journal of the American Medical Association is a sexy thing, isn't it, for journalists? And it seems very credible. But 
And, and look, you're not an expert in that area, so you rely on experts. However, um, five years is a long time. And they should have figured this out a lot sooner. Dan Vergano was one of two journalists who actually took the time to fly to Cuba. I stayed at the same hotel at Dan uh, with Dan and um, had lunch with him. I've known him for 15 years. And um, he was convinced at the time. And he was really surprised. And he's done some really good work on this. He used to be the science editor at um, USA Today. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for explaining all of that. I'm, I'm wondering, maybe we can just transition a little bit. Can you talk about other mass psychogenic illnesses that people may not know about, and, and especially in recent history? Because something you're an expert on this. You've written several books, and you mentioned things like UFOs. Um, what are other examples of mass psychogenic illnesses? And specifically, how does it relate to politics? Because really quickly, I'll just say that you, you mentioned UFOs. Recently, the Pentagon published these reports acknowledging UFOs, but that, that doesn't mean, as you mentioned with your analogy of, of a ho hearing a horse and thinking it's a zebra, that doesn't mean that those unidentified flying objects are extraterrestrial. In fact, a lot of people suspect, including me, that it could be advanced military technology. And in, in fact, there's a very good journalist uh, who focuses specifically on this, and she wrote a book called the Pentagon's Brain about DARPA, the um, Advanced Research Projects Agency of the Pentagon, and talks about how many of the UFO sightings around Nevada are actually probably uh, new experimental forms of military technology that are tested in that area because few people live there. So the most plausible scientific explanation is not aliens riding around in UFOs, but rather new forms of experimental military technology being tested. But immediately, people sometimes jump to a, a more outlandish conclusion instead of Occam's razor that says that it's probably something more logical. So what are other examples of mass psychogenic illness? Well, first of all, you've got to understand that there's mass psychogenic illness, and then there are social panics, and they often overlap. And let me give you an example of a social panic collective delusion that's sometimes referred to. 1954, the United States was doing atomic testing at atolls in the Pacific. And there was widespread concern around the world that radiation could rain down and uh, taint food and cause all kinds of issues. And in the Pacific Northwest, after one of these tests in 1954, a story started to circulate that there was atomic fallout raining down in the Seattle area. Well, people started to report these tiny pit marks on their windshields to the point where this became a, an emergency. The governor of the state called up Dwight Eisenhower and you know declared an emergency and, and asked for help. And when university and government investigators looked closer, they found that there has always been pit marks in the windshields, except for the first time, instead of looking through the windshields, they were looking at them. And that's what things like Havana syndrome do. They alter our perceptions of what's already there. I mean, many of these cases for Havana syndrome have nothing to do with mass psychogenic illness. That first guy in Cuba who went to the embassy clinic, I don't think he had mass psychogenic illness. I think he probably had an earache and a headache and um, a common symptom all the time, right? And so this has spread from Cuba, then it spread globally, right? Which was more mass suggestion. People getting up in the morning, having a headache, hearing a sound outside, and the next thing you know, because you've been primed by the State Department to be on the lookout for anomalous health incidents. You know, people have had anomalous health incidents since they lived in caves, right? And you've also got the Department of Defense doing the same thing. They issued an alert not long ago to all 2.9 million service personnel and contractors to, it's your patriotic duty to report anomalous health incidents. And what happens? You get now, like they're up to a thousand now with anomalous health incidents being reported, there's gonna be thousands more. 
Why? Number one, it, the symptoms are so vague. And number two, lawyers have now got involved and you could get compensation, right? I mean, some, here are the symptoms of Havana syndrome, headache, nausea, dizziness, fatigue. I, I mean, it's, it's 930 here in New Zealand, and I probably had two of these symptoms already. <laughs> um, difficulty concentrating, disorientation, forgetfulness, confusion, tinnitus, insomnia, balance problems, head pressure, and ear pain. And then if you add it to the Canadian ones, they added things like nosebleeds, of which I think there were two. And then, so that gets added on as well. And it's like, oh, nosebleeds, right? And it's so um, vague. Those symptoms are so vague as to be experienced by just about every human being who has li ever lived on this planet on any given week or day of their lives. So for other cases of mass psychogenic illness, I mean, a good one is the Salem one, where, I mean, somebody would visit you and maybe you feel unwell, you have a headache, uh, you feel stomach pain, and then you'd accuse them of witchcraft, right? It's so vague because once you get primed and you think it's witchcraft or what's the difference between that and Havana syndrome? The government has primed you for these symptoms. I also think, and I'll give you some examples of uh, historically in a second, but I also think the E word plays a big part of this, and that's the embarrassment part. I think that you have members of the Trump and Biden administration who are embarrassed by what happened, and they may be deliberately muddying the waters over time, especially in their interactions with journalists to try to make it um, like really there was something and, oh, we'll never find out what really happened. I, I, I'm certain that in the scientific community, this will be settled science uh, very soon um, because the facts are very clear. But this fact that um, it's an embarrassment to think that for five years, we've gone on this wild goose chase, spent tens of millions of dollars wasted valuable time and resources when you've got insurrections and global warming and all these other major uh, events going on like a pandemic um, and accusing the Cuban government or the Russian government and um, saber rattling really uh, with this incident when it turned out to be the mating calls of crickets and some cicadas mixed in there as well. Um, but if you go back in time, um, I first started looking at cases of mass psychogenic illness that parallel this, but then suddenly they shift it, right? First of all, the sonic attack explanation, that clearly wasn't gonna work because sound waves cannot be targeted like that. They dissipate 99% of the sound waves and bounce off the outer wall of any building. And none of the attacks happened at the American embassy. They were at this apartment complex, one of two large hotels and in people's homes. So that quickly kind of that horse died early in the race, right? And then you've got people going, oh, it's microwaves. It, it's a microwave attack because of the Moscow signal stuff and all this others, but it never was gonna be microwaves. Um, and then they kept changing and changing. So we came out first, looking at things to do with sound because one of the things was microwaves. And one of the interesting ones with that one was back in the early 1760s, Benjamin Franklin developed this um, new musical instrument. I'm looking to see if I have a glass. I don't have a glass with me, but he had a glass. And people at the time used to give concerts with a whole bunch of different glasses of water with differing amounts of water and they'd wet their fingers and they'd spin them around the glasses. And what they would do is they make these high pitched sounds and make music. Well, he developed this machine that had a spool of, of pieces of glass that spun around and you could turn it with your foot with a pedal. And as it spun around, you touch it with your finger and make a high pitched sound. And it was known as the glass harmonica with an A. And then people started making them in the late 1760s, 1770s. And they were giving concerts all over North America and Europe. 
And people would go to concerts, and there's a popular belief that if you listen to the glass harmonica, it can cure a variety of ailments. So people were going to these concerts claiming that they were being cured of various illnesses. And then a couple of prominent glass harmonica players got sick. And a folk theory emerged that actually it can make you sick if you go to, people were going to concerts, women were fainting. Uh, they were keeling over. They were claiming that listening to this uh, harmonica could make you sick. So in the course of a few years, the glass harmonica went from a placebo to a nocebo. And you've got recent examples of this in Bristol, England, uh, a few years ago. Um, you had these reports come out that giraffes, you know, they have those two um, humps on their heads. And the report was circulated around the world. Those actual humps on the giraffe um, were capable of making these vibrations that other giraffes at night could hear. And so this got widely reported. A group of people, a significant dozens and dozens of people living near the Bristol Zoo in England complained to the zoo that the giraffe enclosure was keeping them up at night because they were hearing these humming sounds. Well, look, there's humming sounds in the environment all the time and tinnitus as well. And look, the, here's the thing. The humming sounds from the giraffes, uh, you can't hear them. They're below the level of human hearing. So that's not what they were hearing, but they were primed by this news report. And then they started scrutinizing their environment for evidence of this. And that's what you find. And then in Havana syndrome, people start scrutinizing their evidence uh, their environment for evidence of a sonic weapon or a microwave weapon, and they're listening for sounds. But, you know, it never was. Whenever anybody says they were attacked and they recorded those sounds, it never was because you can't record microwaves and that whole fray effect claim. And so you, you've got so many cases that we go through in the book. Um, I mean, just dozens and dozens of historical antecedents um, to this. I mean, when you had um, radio came out, AM radio, people were claiming it was making them sick. People were claiming it was affecting the weather. Um, and there's many cases like that. Um, telephone sickness. When the telephone was first developed, there was crackling noises on the line. And particularly telephone operators thought that those crackling noises were making them sick because it's this new technology, right? It's not just a noise. You're hearing it on this electronic line. And that was a big issue, uh, telephone sickness when that first came out. When, you know, there's always a fear of new technologies when they come out. When ice cubes were first developed with refrigeration technology, <laughs> uh, a number of people claimed to get sick from eating and drinking with ice cubes because of that fear that it was made from an artificial technology. So therefore it's going to, um, there's something special about it and it's gonna make me sick. Uh, mobile phones. It's like 5G when, now. 5G is another one. When video display terminals came out, it was widely believed that um, pregnant women shouldn't sit anywhere near them because it would cause uh, birth defects. So you got all these things going on and, um, yeah, so um, there's just so many cases that we go through. And with politics, I mean, there's a really well-known case in the early 1980s and um, on the West Bank where you had about 1,000 Islamic schoolgirls collapse with a variety of uh, ailments, uh, and, uh, altered states of consciousness, a twitching, shaking, um, and the folk belief was that it was Israeli agents had poisoned them. And that almost, I mean, it stoked up the flames of war where um, it could have actually led to a war. But if you go back and look at what triggered that initial outbreak, it was essentially um, a dirty toilet at a school. And, you know, you know, how a dirty toilet almost led to war. I mean, it went to the United Nations and they were trying to 
tamp down the um, the rhetoric that was going on because people were certain that they'd been poisoned. And another common one was chewing gum in the Middle East, in Israel, in that area with Jordan. And um, um, there have been over time um, waxing and waning rumors that uh, young schoolgirls, Islamic schoolgirls in that area, had been poisoned by chewing gum that gave them hypersexuality. So they're going around, you know, trying to procreate with um, um, non-Muslims potentially. And um, yeah, so you, you've got this, uh, there's so many cases and so little time. Well, and then of course, in the United States, I mean, under Jim Crow, the system of racial apartheid, you had so many similar cases where uh, if a black man just looked at a white woman, he would be accused. So, I mean, there's this like mass hysteria related to racism. And, and I mean, I think what you're showing is these historical cases demonstrate how it's reflected not only in politics, but in culture. And I've been thinking about, for instance, during the, the so-called war on terror, where there are so many Americans who were afraid of being attacked by Islamist extremists. Meanwhile, statistically, you were much more likely to be eaten right. by a shark, much more likely to be killed by furniture falling on you. And, and, I, and I think now, I mean, I mentioned the, the latest example would probably be QAnon, right? But I, I, there's also examples even more recently with the pandemic, you know, there's this idea, billions of people around the world have been vaccinated, literally billions of people. But there's this hysteria that if you get vaccinated, it's gonna cause you to, all these horrible things to happen. And, and they point out like two dozen cases out of billions of people on the planet, which is completely statistically insignificant to say that, you know, you should at least be vaccine hesitant, if not anti-vax and all of this. So, I mean, I think it's, it's clear how culturally and politically it's reinforced. But what interests me as a journalist is how the political class governments will use these kinds of conspiracies to advance their interests. And I got to say, wrapping up here, I mean, there are smart people in the U.S. government. It might not seem like it at times, but there are some smart people in the U.S. government. And I keep asking, like, you know, there's, it's clear there, there, there were people who knew that Havana syndrome was not caused by some ray gun from a Chinese or Russian or Cuban agent and that it was likely mass psychogenic illness, but it was politically convenient to blame Russia, to blame China, to blame Cuba. So, I mean, I, I guess, uh, what do you think the lessons will be from this, if any? And do you think, as someone who has written many books about these issues, as someone who studies mass hysteria, are there cases in recent history where there is a kind of come to Jesus moment, if you will, where the public or a government concedes what happened? Although, again, I, I'm skeptical that that will happen because it's not politically advantageous. But are there examples where people do recognize that that was a ridiculous kind of mass psychogenic illness. It was an example of mass hysteria and they actually take actions to prevent something like that from happening in the future. Well, look, look what happened when Pamela Spratlin was talking on a Zoom call with a number of Havana syndrome patients and the FBI report was leaked, which concluded it was mass psychogenic illness straight up. And, you know, the government keeps ignoring their own reports, the Jason report from 2018, the FBI report. And, um, when she said, well, I'm holding open the possibility of mass psychogenic illness, all possibilities are on the table. They forced her to resign. And that's not right because it should be led by science. But that, what that told me was the investigation was being led by politics and not science. This reminds me of a line from Shakespeare, A Midsummer Night's Dream, or In the Night, imagining some fear. How easy is a bush, supposed a bear? And literally here, you've got the Russian bear. And you know, there's all kinds of historical antecedents. There's always social panics going on and mass psychogenic illness. I personally think it'd make a great TV series and I'm pushing for something like that. But you know, you mentioned okay. even QAnon. Look at the historic, to me, the fascinating thing is the historical antecedents. you got QAnon going on today. One of the central themes of QAnon is, you know, people like Hillary Clinton, Q 
kidnapping babies and drinking their blood. You go back to the satanic ritual abuse panic of the 1980s and early 90s, and you had similar stories about um, satanic cultists working at daycare centers, kidnapping babies, ritually sacrificing them and drinking their blood. You go back to 1830 to 1860, you had the Catholic scare in America. The same thing that nuns were having babies out of wedlock, and they actually had dungeons in the bottom of some convents, and they were sacrificing the babies, drinking their blood, and destroying what was left in vats of acid. You go back to 1750 in France, and there was a rumor that the king was kidnapping children off the streets so he could drink and bathe in their blood because he was suffering from leprosy, and that was the cure. You go back to the Middle Ages, the Jews were supposedly kidnapping babies, sacrificing them, and taking their blood and mixing it in for the bread at Passover and, and, and eating it. Um, so to me, what's interesting here is history never repeats itself, but it rhymes. And with this case of Havana syndrome, what we're seeing is the rhyming of history. Well, I've already kept you a little over, but if you have a few more minutes, I actually wanted one uh, shorter question I wanted to ask you that's kind of unrelated, but um, I've noticed that in the past two years, you've been dedicated your dedicating your research to focusing on anti-Indigenous racism in New Zealand. You live in New Zealand. And um, actually what you said a second ago provoked this question, and maybe you think it would be an interesting question to pose to you, um, because you mentioned you know, the, the anti-Semitic blood libel stereotypes, all these other things. And you mentioned the case of, you know, the of similar stereotypes about native peoples. And what's I think what's interesting is that one exception to that that's actually true is that these Western colonialist, settler colonialist nations like Canada, for instance, and the United States and Australia and New Zealand had these boarding schools where they would take indigenous children from their parents and force to Christianize them and force to assimilate them into white culture and force them to speak English and beat them if they spoke their native tongues. And of course, in last year, in 2020 and 2021, there were these revelations of these mass graves of indigenous school children who were forced to live in these, these um, churches and these schools in Canada, and, and they were mistreated, and some of them were actually killed and buried behind the churches and the schools. So it's actually a, a, an interesting example of uh, an actual example of, of the, this horrible mistreatment. I guess, again, it's, it's not entirely related, but can you just briefly tell our audience about the research you've been doing, the books you've written on anti-Indigenous, anti-Maori racism in New Zealand, and what, what inspired you to write two books now about that? Yeah, well, look, New Zealand's a, a, a wonderful country, um, but people often don't want to hear it. And they say, why are you dredging up the past? Because that past is somebody's history. It's somebody's identity. It's somebody's town. It's somebody's culture. It's somebody's family. And uh, so I started doing research um, on the what they call the segregation era here, which parallel what was going on in the U.S. and the whole Rosa Parks Montgomery bus boycott material. And uh, I, it was very odd because I was teaching history here and I was teaching the Montgomery bus boycott. And most history that's taught here um, in high schools, for example, for NCEA, um, it tends to focus on things like racism in South Africa with apartheid or the Montgomery bus boycott in America or the lynchings. And they do a very good job of teaching it, but not their own history. And so I, I found this community, this region, where they had, um, from 1925 to 1962, in this town called Pukekohe, just south of Auckland, um, most barbers in town wouldn't cut Maori hair, the indigenous group here. And there was one barber who would, who had a special Maori-only chair, so they wouldn't catch a disease. At the theater, they wouldn't let him upstairs. Um, there was only one bar in town that would serve him alcohol. Um, the local school, they had segregated toilets, they had the swimming baths, swimming pools of the time, Monday through Thursday, the non-Maori were allowed in. They put Maori in one day a week, and right after that, they changed the dirty water. 
But what I found that was really interesting that nobody had uncovered was that the deaths. I'll give you one example. This is a small town in New Zealand. In 1938, in a relatively small town in New Zealand, with certainly less than 1,000 Maori living there, 30 um, Maori died that year in 1938. 29 of them were infants and children aged 14 and under. And they died through neglect of this atrocious housing. They were housed in converted manure sheds and potato sheds, buildings with walls made of stacked up benzene cans, sutured together burlap bags, no running water, no indoor plumbing. And they were segregated because they were unhygienic. They couldn't take showers very often. But instead of trying to help them and improve their condition, they segregated them. Why? Because people at the time were taught that Europeans were superior, other races were inferior, and they even had a separate school for Maori. So they didn't have to go to school with an inferior race. And so... Um, to me, what's surprising is the reaction here is a lot of people don't want to know about it, and but it's history. They want to know about Gallipoli and Passchendaele, these battles that New Zealanders were involved in during the war, but they don't want to know about what happened with the indigenous Maori people. And it's such an important story, and it's really taking off now, and there's a push to have it in the curriculum and to have my two books in the curriculum. So I'm really happy about that. Um, and the other observation I would just make is there's so much misinformation out there, whether it's Havana syndrome or with what happened with Maori in New Zealand, there's so much misinformation out there and so little cr critical thinking uh, with social media that many people have stopped searching for information. And instead they're searching for confirmation and affirmation of their pre-existing beliefs. In psychology, that's known as confirmation bias, the tendency to seek out information that reinforces pre-existing biases, stereotypes, and beliefs. And look, as journalists, as somebody who started out in a journalism career 40 years ago, as journalists, we have to do a better job. We have to do a better job of not just trying to get clicks and genuinely doing what I thought they taught us 40 years ago, which is to have balanced journalism, to try to give time to the other side. And that's really important um, to, um, you know, how many national interviews did I do? Not many on television. Um, I did a couple, but they really should have given more time to the other side. But, you know, we're living in an era of partisan politics, and that's a real concern. But for all those journalists out there who promise to report honestly, um, I think we have to get back to that. And, and quite honestly, and this may sound like a radical idea, I would like to see news outlets like Fox News taken down if they're not going to give time to the other side. I can remember when I was starting out as a journalist, I think it was what, three months before an election, you had to give equal time. They had an equal time ruling for the other side. I think that things like Fox News have poisoned, um, just poisoned the air and that you really have an obligation, not only morally, but maybe legally you make that there's an obligation out there. If you give time to one side, you've got to at least expose your viewers to the other side. Look what happened with the stolen election campaign lies that went over on Fox News. Yeah, a lot of this goes back to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, where, I mean, a lot of things on mainstream cable TV would not be legal today. If it weren't for yeah. for that that law but on that note I, I kept you well over the time i hope hopefully um you're not too busy and hopefully i didn't go into anything else but I, on that note i just, i'm going to plug the books that uh professor bartholomew mentioned i'm going to get them up here on the screen these are the two most recent books he published about anti-indigenous racism in new zealand no maori allowed new new zealand's forgotten history of racial segregation and then he has another one here, 
which is a complementary book, which is We Don't Serve Maori Here, a Recent History of Maori Race, Anti-Maori Racism in New Zealand. Very, very interesting topic. And I'm glad to see you cover that because I don't I don't know of anyone else who has focused on that, at least in English. Can, and then, can I just say a couple, couple, yeah, go couple ahead. of things? Number one, I don't mind going over when I'm talking to a journalist who's clearly done his homework and knows what he's talking about. And you know, you. all those things that you're showing up on the screen. So I appreciate that. The second part is I've published a number of books, but when I came out with this book, no, nobody wanted to publish it. They said, because right, it's a which book? book, it's a New Zealand based book. And, and even a couple Sorry, of you're talking about the, the book they, against anti-Maori racism, they wouldn't want to publish. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, so I said to myself, I'm going to publish it myself. So I printed up 250 copies, gave a TV interview on a Wednesday, had a medical conference in Cuba that weekend. So I flew out to Cuba, got there. My daughter said, oh, on a Skype call, she goes, we've sold out all of the copies from your website and we're down 80. And I said, well, we'll order 500 more. And then we sold out again. And that's now in its eighth printing. And I never bothered to, I'm, I'm sure a publisher would do it now, but I, I never bothered. We just, we just put it on the website and printed them up. And um, it just goes to show, I mean, I always believed in it. And publishers are saying, oh, no one's gonna buy it and things like this. I mean, it's just been crazy. I mean, I think we've averaged since the book came out. Um, it's just been phenomenal. And then when the other book came out, that sold out as well. And uh, now it's gonna be part of the curriculum here in New Zealand. And um, I'm really thrilled about that. But I'm kind of like the accidental historian there. I never wanted to write the book. It's not my area of specialty. My area of specialty is social panics, although there is some overlap. And I'm going back to that again. And um, But I've, I've kind of, I'm really happy that that has panned out the way it did. And now I'm going on with, with my stuff on social panics again. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for that service. I, I, I'm going to try to get a copy and they, they look like great books. And uh, actually, this this made me uh, think of another question very, very briefly, because you mentioned you had trouble publishing your books on anti-Maori racism. Did you have pro problems finding a publisher for your book on Havana syndrome here? It was very odd. Um, you know, I have an agent, a uh, literary agent in New York, and he said, um, you know, very competent. He's had number one bestsellers and stuff like this. And he said, well, if you're going to do the book on uh, Havana syndrome, no one's going to buy it. It's, it's not going to be of any interest. Uh, no one's interested in Cuba. I'm not going to represent you for the book. So then we, we, we represented ourselves and we had some university presses interested, but we had a publisher interested, uh, uh, a moderate sized publisher. And it was almost up on Amazon. They almost put everything up. It was all ready to come out. And then they pulled the plug on the book. And it was just very odd, very odd. And they said, oh, um, we're, we've decided we're not going to publish the book now. And they were taken over by, by another publisher. And maybe that had something to do with it. But uh, I've never had that happen. Um, and so then we went to this other publisher, Springer Scientific. And they like, yeah, we do academic books, we'll do this book. It's, you know, the reviewer comments from neurologists were good. And so they did the book. But um, so it was just very odd. I've never had a book being so close to published and they published, they pulled the plug on it. I'm not saying the government was involved there at all, but it is very odd. I mean, I've never had anything like that happen to me uh, before in the past. Yeah, I do have to say it does make you wonder if there was political pressure. But for, for anyone who wants to read this book, it's called Havana Syndrome, Mass Psychogenic Illness and the Real Story Behind the Embassy Mystery and Hysteria. I have to say that Professor Robert Bartholomew, who we're speaking with, and also Professor Robert Below, were both absolutely vindicated. Their thesis has been proven right. And like I said, as I began this, this conversation here, NBC News has a big story up. They just published this January 19th. CIA says Havana syndrome not result of sustained campaign by hostile power. The CIA basically confirming that their thesis was correct. Um, Professor Robert Bartholomew, uh, as we wrap up here, is there anything else you want to plug before I say goodbye? No, other than the fact that um, this isn't just about Havana syndrome. 
Havana syndrome is a gateway to the mass hysteria literature, mass psychogenic illness, social panic literature. And it's something that really needs to be better understood. And people need to know the history of this literature because, I mean, you've had wars almost fought over social panics and outbreaks of mass psychogenic illness in the past. It's a very important uh, topic. And I hope that um, uh, a TV producer will pick this up as a, a TV series because this is a gateway to understanding wind farm syndrome, or what happened at that zoo in Bristol, um, or the hum, or all these other outbreaks of mass psychogenic illness that have happened. And there have been so many others. There was one relatively recently uh, that I wrote about the girls who hiccuped for a year. Turns out that was absolutely mass psychogenic illness. And the Department of Public Health in Massachusetts came out and they were critical of me saying, oh, it's not mass psychogenic. When I, uh, I said that in the press, and then I spent $750 to get the Freedom of Information Act documents. And they had concluded, their expert from Harvard had concluded and issued a report to them saying, we can eliminate every known cause, but one, mass psychogenic illness. So there's still this stigma attached to this topic, this misunderstanding. And it's very important, I think, for the public, for journalists, and for other scientists to have a better understanding of what mass psychogenic illness not only is, but some of these classic cases throughout history. So look, thank you very much. It's been enlightening talking to you. Thank you, yeah. And the last thing I'll say here is that you mentioned the, the threat of war potentially. And I, got, and I have to say that at a particular moment right now of, of very high tensions between the US and Russia, reports like this are so irresponsible. This is CNN last April. U.S. investigating possible mysterious directed energy attack near the White House. And of course, the article heavily implies that Russia could be involved. So, I mean, just baseless articles like this from anonymous U.S. spies with no actual firm evidence accusing Russia of carrying out energy attacks near the White House. It really does actually threat threaten the possibility of of armed conflict or or some kind of serious conflict. And, and let's not forget how a, a kind of media manufactured mass psychogenic illness. I mean, it's not mass psychogenic, but a media manufactured mass hysteria called weapons of mass destruction helped sell the war in Iraq. I mean, uh, I mentioned Russiagate that the media has a long history of without any evidence just using these claims from anonymous U.S. government officials to spread mass hysteria for and it's politically and, advantageous. And that, was the, that was the pattern, wasn't it? They would come up with, um, because there's journalists all over the world who have these connections with the local embassies. So once the alert went out to be on the lookout for anomalous health incidents, you've got your contacts and somebody doesn't feel well and a couple other people have the same bug or whatever it is, right? And the next thing you know, it gets reported as there's an anomalous health incident that may be Havana syndrome, and you get all these inflated cases um, around the world. I mean, there was a case in Colombia. So the Russians are now transporting this weapon down to Colombia, pointing it at the house of one of the diplomats and making their kids sick. I mean, it was just implausible uh, from the beginning. And what's the saying? Um, the Thomas theorem in sociology, if men define situations as real, they are real in their consequences. And that's a dangerous thing because if it doesn't have to be real, it just needs to be that you think it's real and you act on that belief. And if you think you're being attacked, you could have a tit for tat back and forth and things escalate. And it's uh, something that really needs to be uh, a concern. Great, well, with that said, I will direct people here to Professor Robert Bartholomew's website. It is rebartholomew.com. Bartholomew he is a medical sociologist and an honorary senior lecturer at the Department of Psychological Medicine at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And here you can find a list of his many books. You are a very prolific author. It's very impressive. So it was a pleasure to have you. And I have to say, you, you should be taking a well-deserved victory lap because for five years, every major media outlet printed what are 
what is fake news? I mean, let's be real. It, they were fake claims of microwave attacks and you were completely vindicated. So thanks for joining us for this hour. It was a, it was a great conversation. And, and, and it's not over yet, right? I mean, it's the beginning of the end, but now you've got these people going online claiming that the filing whistleblower reports against the CIA um, because of that report they came out with. So I think what you're going to see next is a flare up of this and a big backlash um, with these people venting because they don't understand they are real symptoms. And so it's going to stoke it up even more and then it'll gradually decline because scientists will look at this and the scientific community will accept this first and then it'll gradually become accepted just like that Leroy outbreak in 2011, 2012 in Western New York and some other major outbreaks of mass psychogenic illness. It'll take time. The wheels of progress turn slowly, but they turn. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a good note to end on. Thank you to everyone who joined us to watch this. And of course, as always, this will be available as a podcast version that I'll be posting immediately after. So thanks to everyone. Thanks to Professor Bartholomew, and we'll see you next time.